Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important to those governing organizations. My guest today is Bart Madden. Bart is the author of the just-released book, Value Creation Principles. The pragmatic theory of the firm begins with purpose and ends with sustainable capitalism. Bart co-founded Callard Madden Associates back in 1969, where his research was instrumental in developing the CFROI valuation model that has become an integral part of the investment process for many large money management firms. In the early 1990s, Bart joined Holt Value Associates, a firm created to commercialize the CFROI valuation model worldwide. He retired in 2003 as a managing director of Credit Suisse, which had acquired Holt. Bart has written several other books, including Value Creation Thinking, CFROI Valuation, a total system approach to valuing the firm, maximizing shareholder value, and the greater good, Wealth Creation, a systems mindset for building and investing in businesses for the long term, and Free to Choose Medicine, better drugs sooner at lower cost. And I should note, Bart and I served together on the advisory board of the Center for Advancing Corporate Performance in Chicago. Welcome, Bart. Well, thanks for having me here, David. I am really looking forward to our conversation. You and I have had a chance to talk about many things over these past six, seven months um, related to the thoughts in your book, um, the things that the CACP, the Center for Advancing Corporate Performance, is, is working on. And your book, having just come out, gave us a great opportunity to talk. Um, but I want to first go back to the start of your career in the late 1960s. Can you tell us a bit about Callard Madden Associates and what you set out to do at that time? Sure. Uh, Chuck Callard and I got together, and it, it was a unique research boutique firm, and we had some large money manager clients that uh, funded a I would call it a commercial research program. And the basic mission was to better connect firms' financial performance to stock prices on a global basis. And the idea was to help uh, money managers and later on corporate managers make better decisions. So in those early years, we... Uh, developed what became known as the life cycle framework where basically there, there are two key variables and this makes business in, intuition sense. Your economic returns, uh, sometimes called a return on capital versus the cost of capital and the reinvestment rate over time so that a firm would go through a classic life cycle of a, a high innovation stage, competition is attracted, there's a competitive fade over time as economic returns regress towards the cost of capital. Most firms uh, are at the mature stage, earning the competitive cost of capital. And finally, when firms develop a, a business-as-usual culture and they really quit innovating, then you're in a failing business model stage. So with that sort of a visual picture of how a firm goes through its life cycle, uh, we use that to uh, connect to a life cycle 
valuation model. And a, a key metric was this cash flow return on investment or CFROI. That's a uh, measure of the firm's economic return, and it adjusts for all sorts of accounting biases and is inflation adjusted. So all of the components to the valuation model are so-called real numbers or inflation adjusted. And then we built up a global database over many years and uh, kept on in, in improving on the basic way to better model corporate performance and valuation. Well, and you had mentioned this idea of corporate fade. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, when you had done this, it was a bit of a revelation in terms of investment valuations. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes. A lot of the early work in the 1970s at Callard Madden, 20 years later, started to appear in the finance journals. Uh, for example, in the early 70s, uh, we developed a forward-looking market-implied discount rate, which is attuned to actual stock prices at a point in time. And that was picked up many, many years later by academic finance. And the improved measurements uh, with these CFROI and requiring all data to be inflation adjusted, we did that in the 1970s with high inflation. You couldn't make sense out of a firm's track record. You couldn't figure out is up, up, or down, down, unless the data was inflation adjusted. So if you're going to do any really serious, long-term historical work on companies, all of the data needs to be inflation adjusted. Then the, the key point about a fade rate is, let me put it this way. If you're an investor, and what is the number one skill you would like to have? And I suggest it's forecasting skill for fade rates of individual firms that you may want to invest in. So what, if a firm is earning well above the cost of capital, uh, that's a magnet for competition. So that the, on the one hand, the firm wants to sustain that high level of performance on the other hand, competitors are duplicating the success. So that the fade rate really reflects competitive advantage. Most of the time, competitive advantage is discussed in a very qualitative way. Uh, but when you deal with a quantitative track records of firms, you can, just, you can see over 10, 20, 30, 40 years how competitive fade uh, plays out. Uh, so it, it's an incredibly important concept. Well, and it was so interesting to me when we first met and started talking about this because Jeffrey West, who's a professor at the Santa Fe Institute, a physics professor uh, as part of the Santa Fe Institute, he was looking at complex networks and complex systems and was asking the question about businesses whether they had a life cycle like cities, which live for millennia um, and, and are, are resilient enough to survive nuclear bombs, or if they're like mammals that have a growth pattern that is fast and levels off and eventually rolls over and dies. And so 
I was familiar with his work when I saw yours, and it was it was pretty amazing to see these two different perspectives come together with what was very much a similar realization um, of this pattern of growth and this this pattern towards fade. So I thought it was enhancing of the mindset that we have to do something about this. So in the book you've got now, Value Creation Principles, you take on this idea that organizations eventually move towards value destruction. So that's the very late stage of this, this cycle that you've talked about where they're not earning their cost of capital back and, and they're destroying value. It seems like the requirement to get past that is to continually be innovating. And so in your book, you describe a process of a knowledge building loop. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and, and its importance in terms of sort of getting out of this life cycle, or at least maybe avoiding the late stage where we're destroying value. What I explain in the book is what I label a pragmatic theory of the firm, pragmatic in the sense that it's directly related to improving decision-making for management, boards, and investors. Now, the, the key thing of, that I assert with this pragmatic theory of the firm is that a firm's long-term performance is fundamentally driven by the firm's knowledge-building proficiency relative to competitors. And that's a very kind of a clarifying concept. Now we're talking about a fundamental causal uh, driver of, of performance. So uh, when we shift over to digging deeper into knowledge building, uh, in the book I uh, describe a knowledge building loop where knowledge building is essentially fast and effective tra traversing of this loop. And it's got specific components. You start with a knowledge base that represents, you know, our assumptions about how the world works. And uh, we have a worldview which represents our strongly held beliefs, and that in turn influences our perceptions. Okay, so we continually, you know, take actions to achieve purposes, and that has consequences. That represents feedback that completes the loop and can, you know, change our knowledge base. So that it, this is kind of a cognitive approach to thinking about how to improve the basic performance of business firms. And a few other points that, you know, perceptions are, are shaped by past experiences. And that's something that management should almost just chip on the wall and, 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 and consider seriously. Because most, when you study the histories of firms that go through the life cycle and eventually fail, that there's a period of time where they're doing very well and then they perceive the world based on their past successes. A classic example of Kmart uh, versus Walmart, where you read the annual reports of the CEO of Kmart for all those years when, when Walmart was just getting started, and uh, the Kmart folks would be saying, the future is going to be just as good as the past, 
we're the number one retailer and we know how to do things. Okay, so uh, that leads into this business as usual culture and it's the opposite of knowledge building proficiency where you can organize to get feedback data, get an early leg up on fundamental uh, change. So now, now for example, uh, when you get into theories of the firm, uh, some people will say, particular, here's a particular competency for that firm. And that is why that firm is currently outperforming. Well, my comeback is, how do you improve that particular competency? Well, you improve through knowledge building proficiency which returns to my earlier point that if management is going to get one thing and only one thing right, it should be knowledge-building proficiency and nurture and sustain a knowledge-building culture. And, it, and it's interesting to me in, in seeing sort of this view of the future. Um, you mentioned two professors of mine from graduate school at Northwestern, um, uh, Bob Gordon and Joel Mulkier. And they have different views, it seemed, on the likelihood of innovation. And if I'm if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, um, you had said that Bob's work, Bob Gordon's work, was more suggestive of us not likely to have any big innovations going forward, nothing like we've seen in the past. And Joel Mulcair's view was much more optimistic um, about how people come together to create ideas and, and innovate. How did their research influence what, what you were thinking? Actually, it it didn't have that much of an influence. I put in, in chapter one of my book, I, I have an overview of, of the development of the theory of the firm. And innovation plays a, a central role. And the, uh, uh, the economists that I, I discuss have decidedly different views as to will the future be continue with high innovation or is all the low-hanging fruit been picked? Uh, so what, what I believe is fundamentally missing is that the economists, when they're talking about this kind of a topic of macroeconomic growth and innovation, they go over centuries of data uh, making their particular case uh, about what the future may hold but they don't deal with a business firm. And uh, I believe that the business firm is the engine of progress and it should be the fundamental unit of analysis. In fact, if you pick up a microeconomic textbook uh, and you have the neoclassical way of describing equilibrium, they treat the firm as a black box. Hmm. It essentially is a way for the mathematics to work out. It is totally empty of any insight of business firms. So that's a long-winded answer as to my take on the macroeconomics uh, that, that is, you know, uh, used to make a forecast of more or less future growth. Well, and, and to me, I think of these things as different systems. Um, there's the large system of the economy, whatever we would like to define that boundary to be, and the system that's in the firm and, and multiple systems within the firm and systems that the firm interacts with. Um, your book 
takes a couple of different paths here, and, and you know, part of our our purpose in this podcast is for very practical guidance on things that uh, people should be doing to improve their governance. And so, so I want to look at two of those tracks. One of those is the investor track, um, those who are managing the assets and allocating the capital. And the other track, I think, is to management and boards. You and I have discussed some of our frustrations with beta and CAPM um, and you know, backward-looking risk measures. You have a concept called firm risk. Uh, in the book, which contrasts with that more traditional equity manager's view of beta. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by firm risk and how it is perhaps that investment managers should be should be thinking of that in, in terms of the uh, risk of their portfolios and their allocations? Yeah. If I back up to the pragmatic theory of the firm, yeah. the beginning point is to get absolute clarity as to the purpose of the firm. And I make the case that the firm's purpose has four parts. In other words, first, management need to communicate a vision that can inspire and motivate employees so that they see their work as genuinely making the world a better place and they can rely upon management to behave in an ethical way. Okay, so first is the vision. Second is their survive and prosper by continually improving efficiency and innovating uh, in order to earn the cost of capital. Because we can talk about sustainability, but nothing works long-term if a firm steadfastly fails to earn the cost of capital. The third component of the purpose is to simply sustain win-win relationships with all the firm's stakeholders. And the fourth component is to take care of future generations, and that involves at a very early stage to design products and services that minimize waste and and pollution. Now, interestingly, uh, when there's some clarity about the purpose of the firm, then uh, maximizing shareholder value, I believe, is best viewed as the result of a firm successfully achieving its purpose. Now, that way of looking at maximizing shareholder value, I think, can defuse a lot of heated debate of stakeholder theory versus maximizing shareholder value theory. So, with that as background, then a firm risk, uh, I define firm risk as uh, impediments to the firm achieving its its purpose. And we've already described the four components to the purpose. Now, that's a very overarching kind of a view of about uh, firm risk. In other words, firm risk will decline with a very innovative, knowledge-building uh, culture. And, well, here's one striking example Uh, in the book, the idea, when you think firm risk, you have a long-term horizon and you're you're not so concerned about about short-term volatility in a stock price or co-movement of securities in a portfolio that has to do with the beta. You're talking about the fundamental stuff that's going on that, that could 
either help or impede the firm to achieve its purpose. Now, think of Union Carbide. In 1984, the worst industrial so-called accident occurred in India where over 10,000 people died from an explosion of a chemical plant. Now, if you were to turn the clock back and analyze what was going on at that particular uh, plant is that management was under pressure to hit short-term accounting targets. What did they do? They started minimizing accounting costs wherever they could. And it was plain to people. In fact, there was a, a reporter wrote a story about that plant saying that, hey, everyone should wake up. We're sitting on a volcano, written up in the newspaper. Management, instead of graduate engineers controlling this plant, they hired high school graduates. Now, uh, if you get back to firm risk, win-win partnerships, taking care of future generations, behaving in an ethical fashion, firm risk exploded based on management's uh, awful behavior in that plan. Now, this is really fundamental stuff that, to me, you know, speaks volumes more than abstract mathematics, uh, which tends to be viewed with classical mainstream finance, uh, cap M and beta version of risk. And you, you're very strong in, in emphasizing purpose, which, which is really the leading element of what we're trying to do in an organization. If there's, if there's someone who starts a company or whether you're running uh, a firm that's more mature, that purpose w is what inspires. At the same time, with everything you described in there, it seems to me that in order for there to be a sense that you really are committed to that purpose, there have to be high levels of trust. And you talk in the book about a couple of different companies, I think Amazon was one of them, who do things that hurt the short-run performance but have generated substantial amounts of shareholder value in the long run, which may or may not have happened uh, if there wasn't trust that what they were doing was going to be correct and that they were going to adhere to their purpose. How important is trust um, in that purpose? You know, when, when you think about all the different stakeholders, that can be shareholders, employees, um, how important is trust in, in adhering to that purpose that's described by the firm? Yeah, I, I, would, I would put that in two parts. When management uh, reports the quarterly earnings and there's a shortfall like Amazon has done historically, and they, they explain why the accounting quarterly earnings was lower because they're making mammoth investments and quite often, like in the case of Amazon, the stock price would rise in the face of a so-called below-expectations quarterly report. Now, that is rooted in a track record where Amazon has demonstrated to investors that they are very smart, they know what they're doing, and when they make these long-term investments, it's a smart move. Then when they... Uh, embark upon a large-scale project which will not pay off for some years, then investors at that point trust management judgment uh, that this is, is value-creating and it's in their best interest. So my point is that management has to earn the trust 
from investors. Now, Amazon is an, is an outlier, uh, but this, this, this process that I've that been talking about of investors appraising uh, skill when they uh, hear of an announcement of a large investment. Uh, this is empirically uh, supported. There was a, uh, a study way back when, I think it was in general finance, uh, and that the authors looked at large investments in uh, R&D, and then they uh, uh, separated out, they put into buckets firms that had a, a track record of high success with R&D versus low success. And sure enough, you would see that the stock market responded very favorably to large investments, even if they could would penalize the short term a bit. So you get back into managerial skill, investments, and how stock prices are, are formed. And... You know, over time, on average, stock prices are very, very astute forecasts of likely future performance. It's one of those things that um, we obviously talked a lot about in the 80s in terms of market efficiency, but I think when people are looking for value add in terms of analysis of companies, um, if they fail to appreciate that or account for that, um, it may look like things like ESG and, and, and other ways of analyzing how companies live don't add value, when in fact they do. It's just the market sometimes is pretty good at already incorporating that. Now, we've just got a couple minutes left, Bart, um, but I want to get again to this, this idea of, of how executives and board members can, can take what you've written um, and put it into practical use. There are a number of companies. I mean, you have, you have a substantial number of case studies in the book um, Danaher, Intuitive Surgical, a number of others that you point to in terms of how they are implementing some of the ideas that are in the book. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of practical information there. But if you were to say to a board member or senior executive today, what's the first thing they should be doing after reading your book to avoid fade and reduce firm risk? Is, is there a starting point? What's, what's the place that they should begin on this journey? I would make two major recommendations to boards. And the first one is they should actively get engaged in overseeing how well is management nurturing and sustaining a knowledge-building culture. Uh, in fact, there's a – let me see if I can – on page 28 of my book, i got it here in front of me. <laughs> a, let, let me read a quote from uh, Brad Smith, the CEO of Intuit, which just speaks volumes about this knowledge-building culture. By the way, Inuit has a stellar long-term track record of performance. Uh, Smith says, the culture you create lays the foundation that enables every other part of the company to grow and succeed. Job one in creating a culture is building a purpose-driven culture. One way leaders can create an action-oriented environment is to match inspiration with rigor, adopting a rap rapid experimentation culture that cuts through hierarchy, especially if leaders hold their own ideas to the same scrutiny of testing, creating an environment where everyone can innovate and debate turns into doing. That's what I'm talking about, that 
that this knowledge-building culture is not some abstract concept. It's the nuts and bolts that determines uh, long-term survival and prosperity. So that's my number one recommendation. Number two is a, uh, an idea that I've been promoting for, for many years, and that's for boards to implement life cycle reviews. In other words, you know, the critical decision boards are making has to do with resource allocation and strategy. So their business units are making the case to give them capital to invest for the future. Now, with life cycle reviews, there are three parts. One, each business unit, uh, you have the data in life cycle terms, the historical economic returns and reinvestment rates versus the cost of capital. Okay, given that context, then uh, you debate the strategy and the reinvestment in terms of likely value creation for the business unit. And the third part of life, life cycle reviews has to do with intangibles. Intangibles in the new economy are dominating value creation, and it's a very tough kind of a deal to measure intangibles. So with life cycle reviews, that the board and management recognize the importance and the difficulty, and they work with the CFO and the CFO staff to continually experiment on how to adjust financial data to give them a better readout of economic returns versus the cost of capital, and then enable them to make far better investment decisions. The challenge for me always in these conversations, Bart, is 30 minutes. Um, what I would say to people is that last week or the week before I was interviewed for a podcast where they ask uh, what book you would recommend to people, and, and I had said uh, Eric Beinhacker's The Origin of Wealth because it's, it's such an interesting examination of how people come together to create wealth in these complex systems. I would add to that if they had allowed me uh, a second book, this new book, Value Creation Principles, that, that you've written. The pragmatic theory of the firm, I think the emphasis on that word pragmatic is really important because it's easy for us to start thinking we're dealing with abstractions and just theory. But if you go through this book as a board member or manager or investor, I guarantee you're going to improve your performance and performance of your organization. The book is that good. Uh, make sure you go out and get it. Spend some time reading it. Um, Bart, you know, there's much more that we'll be doing together with the Center for Advancing Corporate Performance, uh, but I appreciate your time today uh, and hope people will pick this up because it is one of those books that will change the way in which you think about everything that you're doing. Thank you for writing it. Thanks a lot, David.